you have your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis is the first book of the Bible. We're going to look at a little bit of Genesis 11 and Genesis 12. Uh, we begin a new sermon series today that we have entitled, uh, it's a study of the, of the life of Abraham that we've entitled Finding Faith in a Fallen World. And I'm really excited about this study of the life of Abraham. Abraham had a major impact, continues to have a major impact on our world today, even though it has been some 4,000 years since he lived. Think about that with me. Did you know that there are at least three major world religions that look to Abraham as their father? Islam, of course, sees Abraham as one of the prophets from Adam to Muhammad. Judaism sees Abraham as the founding father of the covenant, the one who established that close relationship between God and the Jewish people. And in Christianity, the New Testament teaches us that Abraham is the father of all who believe. And so, These three major world religions all look to Abraham as a major part of what they believe. That's over half of the world's population, 4.3 billion people. So Abraham continues to have a major impact on our world today. And if you're going to understand world culture to any extent, then you need to know about Abraham and his life and uh, what he stands for, and what he did, and has continuing effect on the world today. So today we'll look at Abraham, what we might say is his origin story, Uh, Genesis 11, we'll see the beginning of that, and we'll get into Genesis 12 a little bit today, uh, as we look at the very beginning where the Bible first begins to speak of Abraham. So I'm going to read Genesis 11, verses 27 through about 12, 4, and I'll pray for us. And we'll dig in and begin to study the life of Abraham together. Hear now God's word from Genesis 11, beginning in verse 27. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, the name of Nahor's wife Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Izcah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you All families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Let's pray together as we come to God's word. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for preserving this word for us. 
It seems so ancient and far away and cold. We ask now that you would make it near to us, that you by your spirit would apply it to our lives. Surely you have preserved these words for that very reason, so that you might remind us of who you are and who you made us to be. And so I pray that you'd be willing to use this word to do that even now. And Father, I ask that you'd be willing to use even the sin-stained lips of a foolish preacher to do so. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. As we begin a new year, we often use this time as individuals to sort of evaluate where we are and how we've been doing. And then plan how we want to do better in the new year. Some of us make New Year's resolutions or try to establish new habits going forward. And I think that's a good thing to do. In fact, I think it's a good thing for us to do as the people of God, not just individually, but corporately for us to think about how are we doing? And to answer that question, we have to know who are we supposed to be as the people of God. What is it that we're supposed to be and to do in this world? I mean, God has saved us, has called us to himself, but he hasn't taken us on to heaven, so he must have work for us to do in this world. So what is it that God would have us to be and to do as his people in the world today? And it's interesting, as you read the New Testament and as it discusses that question, who are we to be and to do as the people of God in the world, often the New Testament will say, consider Abraham. You can see that in Romans chapter 4, Galatians chapter 3. Abraham as a pattern, as a prototype for what believers, what followers of God should be and do in the world around us. And so we're going to take some time to consider origin story. We see at least three things about the people of God that I want to look at with you together this morning. Number one, what do we learn about the people of God? What are we to be and to do? Number one, we offer, there you may not see, the hope that there is for humanity. Well, that's because you're beginning in chapter 12 of a book, right? Verses, uh, chapters 1 through 11 come before chapter 12. And to understand what's going on here, we must understand the context. Perhaps you're familiar with the book of Genesis. You know, in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, we read where God created all things out of nothing in the space of six days and all very good. Then in Genesis 3, a fall happens. The man and the woman disobey God. They don't live life the way he designed it to be lived. And as a result, shame and blame enter God's good creation. Hatred and oppression, decay and death, and God's good creation is spoiled by sin. If you were with us for the Christmas Eve service during the Christmas, Eve, during the Christmas season, we kept looking at that promise of God in Genesis 3 and verse 15. Remember, that was the hope of humanity. Was that in the midst of the fall, God speaking to the serpent, the one who tempted the man and the woman, and he says to him, look, God promises that this seed of the woman, a human, the, a descendant of Eve, is going to come, and at great cost to himself, right, the serpent's going to strike his heel, he would deal evil a mortal blow. He would crush the serpent's head. 
And so from Genesis 3.15 on, the unfolding of Scripture is the unfolding of that promise. But as you begin to read the Scripture, looking at the seed of the woman, so these children of, of Eve, there's going to be one that triumphs over evil. And so you look, and Adam and Eve have Cain and Abel, and we look to them with great hope, and you read in Genesis chapter 4, and Cain kills Abel. Well, now that throws a wrench in the story as we look to the seed of the woman. One of them is dead, and the other one is a murderer marked by God. God grants Adam and Eve another son, Seth. But as we track even the descendants of Seth looking for the seed of the woman to give us great hope, things get worse and worse on the earth. The evil only increases until every inclination in the heart of man is only to do evil, and God grieves his creation and in genesis 6 through 9 we read the account of noah where noah finds favor in the eyes of the lord and god sends a great flood to cleanse the earth to deal with this problem of sin and brokenness but as soon as noah and his sons and daughters-in-law come off the boat sin enters the world Again, it remains as Noah gets drunk, something shameful happens, one of his sons is cursed, and sin continues to fill the earth. By the time you get to Genesis 11, right before this account, instead of filling the earth with the glory of God and people spreading out and filling the earth, the people have decided to all gather in one place. And instead of glorifying the name of God, they've decided they're going to make a name for themselves. And so they, they endeavor to build a tower all the way up to the top of heaven so that they would be equal with God. And despite all the increase in technology that enables them to build this, this, this uh, structure, all the increases in culture, all the progresses in civilization, things don't get better they get worse the new inventions just give the heart of man new ways to produce shame and blame new ways to express hatred and oppression new ways to exploit and see decay and death humanity has disobeyed god's authority has disregarded god's boundaries They've distrusted God and his way. And so as we get to Genesis 12, the situation is bleak. It is dark. There doesn't seem to be much hope for humanity. But the good news of the story of Abraham is this. God does not give up on his creation. God remains committed to making all things right. And I want to just stop right there. If that's the only point you get from Abraham, that God doesn't give up, that he continues to move toward a sinful and broken world, that's an important point. Many of us feel like we can't come to God, that God has given up on us, that we've done too much, that it's been too wrong. But the story of Abraham reminds us that God does not give up on his creation, that he remains committed to making all things new. And how does he do that? 
but that this group of people would be a blessing to the rest of the world. It's not as though God has turned his back on all of creation by choosing this one man, this one family. You can see there in chapter 12 and verse 3 that God still has the whole world in mind because he's saying, I'm going to bless you, and then through you, through your seed, through your descendants, I'm going to bless all families, all nations of the world. So the story of Abraham is a story of great hope, and it offers hope for humanity. Now, I want to be very clear. It's not that Abraham was a great man. It's not that this people that God uses and calls to himself as a vehicle of blessing, it's not that they are perfect, far from it. Before this chapter is over, Abram will try to give his wife away to Pharaoh, even though she's supposed to produce the the seed that's the hope of humanity. He only tries to give his wife away twice in the book as we go. As he gets impatient with God's plan, he'll father a child with her handmaiden. And then when that doesn't work out well, he'll leave Hagar and Ishmael to die exposure in the wilderness. Even after accepting the call of God, Abram is not a great man. At this time when he's called, he's actually a pagan, worshiping other gods. He's not even a father. We look at the the culture, the so-called progress of the world around us, and I think many of us would say it hardly looks like progress at all as the increasing technology and the increasing culture only helps us to invent ways to produce shame and blame. That the new things at our disposal only give us more options for how to express hate and oppression. For how there can be more decay and death and more sophisticated ways. There are many of us who are afraid. But this story shows that God has not given up on his creation. And it's a reminder to us that God's answer to this degradation in the world that we see is to call a people to himself what Jesus said, right? The Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. He calls his followers, he says, look, you are salt amidst a world that needs to be preserved. You are light in a world of great darkness. It's what the Apostle Paul writes of the people of God in Romans chapter 8. Remember what he says there? He says that our present suffering is not comparing to the glory that will be revealed. You can begin there in verse 18. And he talks about how the Creation was subjected to frustration. It's broken and messed up. As the creation groans as in the pains of childbirth, waiting on what? On the sons of God to be revealed. On the people of God to look more and more like Jesus. Waiting on the church to be the church. I don't know how you respond when you hear that. Perhaps you think, well, things are really bad and the church is the answer. Really? That's what you got? They're so broken and messed up. Listen, the people of God have always been broken and messed up. 
God uses broken and messed up people to achieve his purposes. In fact, that's the only kind of people he uses, because that's the only kind of people that there are. And it's not that the people of God do so perfectly, we fall short. It's that we do so intentionally. It's that we do so consistently. That we continually live lives of repentance. But even as I say that the people of God is the answer, that that is God's plan for making things right, for working through us as the hands and feet of Christ, I want to remind us that the way we see the kingdom come is not the way we often prefer for it to come. I remind us that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, that this is a spiritual battle, that we're called to guard our hearts and our minds, that we're called to sacrifice ourselves and to renew our minds in our dedicating ourselves to God so that he reveals his will will to us and then uses us to change things. Romans 12, verses 1 through 3. Prayer is an important tool. The word. The hope of humanity is that the church would be the church. That the people of God would be wholly devoted to God, living as becomes a follower of Christ. Showing humanity, not perfectly, but being an example to humanity that there is another way, that there is a better way. How does that happen? How do people who are pagans like Abram become a vehicle that God uses? What does that look like? How does that happen in our lives? Good question. Second point, number two. Who are we as the people of God? What are we to be and to do? Number two, we find our identity and our security in God. We find our identity and our security in God. You see that in chapter 12, verses 1 through 3 right there. Like we hear God calling Abram to leave the country that he's in, to leave his family, to leave his father's house and go to another place. And for us, that's not a big deal. We live in a mobile society. Many of us move all the time. Some of us love the idea of getting away from family. Lord, please give me that command, maybe you think, after spending time with them over the holidays. This is not, this doesn't sound like a a difficult command for us, but in the ancient world, this was a very difficult command. Because all these things God calls Abraham to leave are the very things where he would find his identity and his security. I mean, he's identified, he's introduced, Genesis 11, introduced as the son of Terah. That's his identity. He's Terah's son. And that's where he would find his identity and his security. And when he's told to leave the country that he's in, the land that he's familiar with, think about how big of a deal that is 4,000 years ago, right? You understand, you you don't read Wikipedia about where you're going, right? There is no trip advisor. There is no Duolingo to learn the language and the customs of where you're going. He just leaves the place that he's familiar with. 
the place where he knows to do life, the place where he knows what plants you can eat and which plants are poison, which plants can be used for medicine, where are the places to go to find these things, where are the places to avoid because they're dangerous. He's called to leave this place of security. He's called to leave his family and his father's house. His father's house is his house. His father's stuff is his stuff. His father's gods have been his gods. And he's called to leave all those things in which he has found his identity and his security. God comes and says, I want you to give up all the things you rely on for identity and security, and I want you to rely exclusively on me. And notice, he doesn't even tell him where he's going. He says, I want you to leave and go to a place I will show you. Can I get like latitude and longitude or something? Can I get a hint? What should I pack to wear? Is it going to be hot or cold? He calls Abram to trust him and to rely on God exclusively. And the New Testament says that Abraham's belief, that his reliance, that the way he responds to God is the way that all Christians should respond to God. That we're all called to leave those things that we find our identity in. We're called to not rely on those things that we find our security in and to rely on God completely there are so many things so many good things that we look to for our identity and our security some of us look to our family or our mom or our dad or being a good mom or being a good dad some of us look to success however we define that term success at work success in the culture some of us look to popularity Some of us rely on our money, the the amount of money that we have in the bank. Some of us rely on our relational connections or our intellect or our beauty or our strength. There are so many things that we look to. And God calls us to rely on him for our identity and our security. Now, preachers that usually at this point say something like, we're not necessarily called to go, to leave where we're going, that it doesn't mean physically leaving. And I suppose that's true, and we'll sketch that out. But I don't want to downplay that. For some of us, it does mean physically leaving where we are. If the gospel is to go to the nations, then someone has to take it. And God has been faithful to physically move people from this place over my objections to him. He's determined the times and places where people live. I think of the Cody's in South Africa. We pray for Emily Alves who is in South America. I think of the folks that God has physically moved from this place. And sometimes that is a part of what it means to respond to the call of God. But leaving and going does not necessarily call for a geographical change. All Christians, in order to find our identity and security of God, must go through a leaving of the world. 
There is a certain going out from the world. And listen, that doesn't mean that we become hermits because we're called to make a difference in the world. We'll talk about it in a minute. We're blessed to be a blessing, right? We're a vehicle that God uses to change the world. And so we don't just totally withdraw from the world. But there is a kind of leaving that is spiritual, that is mental, that is attitudinal, that may not involve any change that's geographical. In order for us to be and to do what God is calling us to be and to do, there must be a leaving of this world. And the reason why that's important is this, is because the world is telling us a different story from the one that we find revealed in God, by God in his word. And we must adopt the worldview of God and his word because it is true to the way things are. It's the way he created them to be. And so we must have this renewing of our minds that happen. And we must adopt the worldview of the story in which we're a part, which is the worldview of God and his mission found revealed in God's word. And I must tell you, even though we read in verse 4 that Abram obeyed and he left and he went, I must tell you for the people of God, this is not a one-time leaving. But it's a day-by-day, hour-by-hour, moment-by-moment leaving the way we think in the world. To embrace our identity and our security found in God alone. And as we do that, as we find our identity and our security that God makes to a specific person in the Bible, can I just take and adopt for my own? That's a good question. If you have that question in your mind, that's a good question to have. But as we'll see as we go through this series, we're told in the New Testament that these promises do apply to us. I think of Galatians 3, beginning in verse 9, where we're told that those who have faith in Christ, those who are in Christ Jesus and have faith in him, are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And Galatians 3 and verse 29 reminds us that if you belong to Christ, then you are Abram's seed, the one that's talked about here. You are Abraham's offspring and heirs of the promises that are made to Abraham. So we can claim these promises and look these because the scripture tells us that we can as those who are in Christ Jesus. Read Galatians 3 later. And really, we could look at any of these promises and expand them. I mean, in my research that I was preparing, I mean, we could look at land and what's happened to land promise. We could look at becoming a great nation. Uh, But but I want to focus on the blessing part of this. I want to take just a moment to think about the blessing. As the people of God, we're so blessed. And the reason I want to talk about blessing is because I think a lot of times we're afraid to talk about how God blesses his people in the church. And I understand why we are. We're afraid to talk about that because of the abuses that we see. There are people who are on TV who will get on there and say, I want God to bless me by giving me a a 747, as if Redeemer needs a jet plane, right? Or individuals 
say, I want God to bless me with a 5 Series BMW, and I'd love to be blessed in that way. But if you have children, you know that every whim and want they have being granted by a parent is not a way to be a good parent. It's not what is best for our children. And our Heavenly Father evidently means something different by blessing when He uses the term. So what does God mean when he says blessing? What does the scripture mean when he says blessing? Let's let's forget we even know the word blessing and allow just the word to inform us as to what that means. And if you have read the story up to this point, Genesis 1 through 12, God doesn't actually bless very often. The word's only used a handful of times. So when he says he'll bless, what what am I supposed to take away? What do I mean by that? What what does God mean when he says that? Well, the first time we see the word blessing used is on day five of creation, Genesis chapter one. On day five, he's making the sea creatures and the birds of the air. And we're told that God blessed them. And then he tells them to be fruitful and to multiply. And they do. And the sea is teeming, swarming with sea creatures. And that birds fill the air. And so we learn, we take away from that, that blessing by God, as he defines it, has something to do with being fruitful, with multiplying, with the creation of life, with filling with life, an abundance of life. That the blessing of God is something that is life-affirming, that affirms whatever leads to life. And if you keep reading, a curse (laughs) leads to death. It is anything that leads to death. And so Genesis 1, day 5 of creation, blessing is associated with life affirming. Day 6 of creation, God says a similar thing to the land, animals, and to the people. Remember, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. We talked about that, but then he goes on. And he says, people that I've made, I want you to fill the earth and subdue it, to rule over it, to have dominion. That God's blessing has a certain order of things. That there's a structure, the way he's designed things to be, and living within the freedom we have within those boundaries allows us to experience God's blessing. And outside of those boundaries... There is curse. There is a lack of blessing. There is death. Day seven. Again, God rests from his creation, and he blessed the seventh day and made it holy, that it's wholly dedicated to the Lord, that there's this blessing that comes from resting in God. From taking one day that we cease from our labors and rely on him to uphold the universe and to produce what we need. So we see that this idea of blessing has in mind is something that affirms life. It's something within the the order of things. It's something within the the order of how things were designed to be. And it comes from a, a resting in God. Dedicating ourselves wholly to him. And as you keep reading in Genesis, we see exactly what God says here. That he blesses his people 
and that they become a blessing to other people, that those who come into contact with people who have been blessed by God are themselves blessed. Jacob, a descendant of Abraham, goes to his uncle Laban, and, and he prospers. Laban prospers because he comes into contact with Jacob. Same thing with Joseph, another descendant of Abraham. He goes to Potiphar's house in Egypt, and Potiphar's house is blessed because Jacob is there, and he is blessed. Same thing happens with Pharaoh in Egypt. Pharaoh comes into contact with whom God has blessed. That's what it means that we are blessed to be a blessing. So let me just ask you, so life-giving, we're just one of those kinds of people that, that give you life. And then we're around some people who seem to suck the life out from. We're not living life the way he designed it to be lived. That's just to others. We're called to be a blessing and to repent what we, when we don't. And certainly we are not perfect as a people. We don't do this perfectly. But in others, there is great hope for humanity. The story of Abraham is such good news. Because as bad as things get, God remains committed to his creation. And he shows that he has a plan so that there is hope for this world. And the plan, as scary as it may be, is that he calls a group of broken and messed up people and begins to work in us in such a way and as we experience his blessing, we become a blessing to those around us. We're not a perfect people, but God uses us, and that gives great hope to us and to humanity that all is not 